Well, good morning. So it was a, uh, a cold weekend, and if the rest of you are wondering why it snowed, I can tell you that um, back in July, I think it was, maybe August, or as soon as it got above 75 degrees, Trent was praying for snow. And so we have it in abundance today. But I'm glad you're all here safe. And today, we're going to be talking about the book of Galatians. And Galatians was a collection of young churches. Essentially, when we read through the New Testament, we see explosive evangelism and the clarification of doctrine and the perseverance of many brethren, often in times of great duress. Yet, the rhythm of the gospel truth unfolds with a precision by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's truly a cadence of grace. So before we get started, let me pose a question for all of us. What happens when a church, a congregation, or a member gets out of step with the one true gospel cadence? You see, it happened in Antioch and Galatia, and it could happen here, but I pray not. You see, sometimes we ourselves have witnessed this happen when social class or race becomes barriers that threaten the brotherhood of the church. So how do we guard against becoming out of step? Moreover, what does it look like when a church is in step with the gospel? Today we're going to dive into Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, perhaps 16. And here we're going to find issues faced by the churches in Galatia are an example for us today. Paul the Apostle Paul was dealing with Christians drifting from the one true gospel. He was compelled at the time to take opposition to established leaders in the church. And this was undertaking an attitude of behavior and works that were being added to the gospel message. So beneath all of this was the issue that the one true message of faith alone was being compromised in this church. The epistle of Galatians gathers its title from the region of the people to whom it was addressed to. And for a point of clarification or reference, Turkey is the modern-day region of historic Galatia. Now, some commentators debate if Paul directed this letter to northern or southern churches in the region. This is important because it impacts the, time, excuse me, the timeline of the text as well as the overall context or the atmosphere for its background. From the readings I did, I noted that there were several respected commentators who provided good arguments or compelling arguments in favor of the southern churches. Now, because neither Acts nor Galatians seems to mention northern cities of the region, that seems like a reasonable proposal. Of interest also is that Galatians is the only Pauline letter written to churches in more than one city. So it's a collection that we're talking about. Paul wrote a number of letters in the New Testament, 13 to be specific, and each one was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they emphasized different themes and, and situations. There's common threads that are observed in the writing style, although Galatians, being a book that is written to this group of churches, is somewhat different in its tone and meaning. Sometimes it is harsh to the senses when you read it. So as I mentioned, it was written to a young group of Christians. Galatians is an apologetic letter. 
Paul explains to them that their spiritual problem is not only caused by failing to live in obedience to God through the law, it is caused, also caused by their failure to solely rely on His grace for all they need. The truth is, all they needed is the gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, nothing more. You know, in simple terms, Paul does not tell them to be better Christians, but he does call them to live in freedom. And that freedom is the same freedom that we enjoy today as born-again believers. Now, Paul's life was earmarked with extraordinary events, most notably on his way to Damascus from Jerusalem when he was confronted with the risen Christ in Acts 9. And this sovereign and dramatic encounter turned Paul from being the dreaded persecutor of Christians into perhaps the greatest missionary. Paul's background of intense Jewish culture, how he was brought up, his study, his fervent pursuit of Christians, all adds flavor to the weight of this letter and how it was read historically back then to those churches in Galatia, but it also makes, his, makes it just as poignant today for our purposes here at First Baptist Nixa. So Galatians also contains some of the most direct and difficult text between two apostles. Other letters from Paul express themes of joy and love, detailed doctrines of grace, and even capture an encouraging tone for the overall body of Christ. However, the early church theologian named Jerome said he heard thunder when he read the letters of the apostle Paul. Clearly, when we read through Galatians, there are times when the texts express passion and sarcasm, and it is striking. But what was going on? What were the events that were underway when this book was written or when this letter was written? There are a number of links within Galatians that point towards the book of Acts, chapters 11 through 15, perhaps 16. And as you remember, Christians were being persecuted intensely. In Acts 11:19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Because at the time, Barnabas and Paul were respected leaders, being early church planters in the region. The Lord had blessed the Antioch church, and it grew in numbers significantly, so much so that when they were able to send a love offering along with Paul and Barnabas to assist with the famine that was going on in Judea. So when Paul and Barnabas returned from this trip, they were sent on what is referred to as Paul's first missionary journey where they founded the churches in Galatia. And this was significant because upon their return, they were able to report, as it says in Acts 14, 27, it says, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You see, this was a milestone event in Acts as it documented how the grace of God had been equally provided for both Jew and Gentile believers. The text clarified that there was no barrier at all between Jew and Gentiles with respect to Christ and salvation. 
And this also serves as a precursor to Paul's arguments for open table fellowship in Galatians. It was during this trip away from Galatia when the gospel began to be compromised. Scary word when we're talking about the gospel, right? So with the possibility of this actually dividing what was a thriving and truth-driven church, and the problem at hand was that the church in Galatia started to say, in behavior as well as in doctrine, so to, so to speak, to be saved that you needed to have Christ plus something else, keeping the law perhaps. And whenever we contend that our salvation is dependent on anything but unmerited grace, we have then reversed the gospel and rendered it null and void. So let's go through our text that we're going to be researching or, or preaching through today. It's Galatians 2, 1 through 15, perhaps 16. So everybody grab your Bibles and go to that. And this is a long section, so uh, stay with it. It's, uh, it's going to be worth it in the end. 2, 1 through 15. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, who they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for the, his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, there was a controversy in Antioch, and the issues developing were profound and split into two discrete problems of truth. But before going further, consider that in chapter 1 of Galatians, all through chapter 1, Paul expresses repeatedly that God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance. Also consider that Paul begins the letter to the churches of Galatia emphatically reminding them that there is no other gospel than the one he preached. He went so far as to reprimand anyone who would preach a gospel with a contrary message. Recognizing this situation, Paul understood that the Judaizers have brought the churches into confusion on three fronts. Specifically, Paul realized the Judaizers had explicitly called his doctrinal authority into question. They also suggested that salvation required faith in Christ, plus circumcision and certain law-keeping with respect to table practices. Finally, they threatened Christian liberty and justification by erroneously making Jewish law an addendum to faith. You all know what an addendum is. It's just when you add something else, or it's at the back of a document, something else that has to go with it. So Paul's letter needed to be clear and fix this confusion swiftly. In chapter 1, Paul, being skilled in Jewish law and tradition, handily directs the thrust of his letter to establish that he was called by God. Therefore, the gospel message delivered through him is not of men, and he reminds them of his apostolic confirmation. This was important because, after all, if Paul was unable to establish his direct authority, then these people would be able to have some rationale to claim that salvation was a mixture of grace plus works because it was just coming through a man and not from God through Paul. Then in chapter 1, 11 through 24, I think Paul reconstructs an argument and masterfully sets up the remaining portions of the letter. If you might recall, Paul's framework began by referencing his Jewish lineage and legalistic fortitude. Paul emphasized how successful he was at persecuting Christians and that he was set apart before I was born so that he would preach to the Gentiles and did not need the approval of anyone from Jerusalem. Now, we shift gears. In chapter 2, Paul recounts that he went up to Jerusalem through direct revelation, and at the time, he took Barnabas and Titus, Titus being an uncircumcised Gentile believer. So, Paul arrives with both the local church planter, Barnabas, and Titus as a sort of visual representation of the work of the gospel. Now, if there was a time to challenge Paul's gospel message, this was it. He arrived demonstrating that the one true gospel was shared with Gentiles and that following the law added nothing to the salvation of Titus. As Paul writes, even false brethren attempted to sway the gospel tide, yet they did not submit. If we refer to Acts 15, 1, we see the same issue regarding circumcision. But the result of Acts 15 is the same as it is here, and that grace is the only element and that works adds nothing to salvation. 
But by the end of the first chapter in Galatians, Paul has established his authority in a couple of ways. First, he demonstrates that this initial consultation was not one to seek approval. I think it demonstrates his equality of authority with Peter and James. Further, Paul states that he was trusted with the gospel presentation to the Gentiles and given the right hand of fellowship in Jerusalem. But even more important, perhaps, is that Paul met with those who seemed to be influential. In other words, he was meeting with those who were the theological elite or the captains of the, of the local church bodies. In other words, later in verse 9, James, Cephas, and John were identified as these influential members. Arguably, the approval of these three would authenticate Paul's gospel message as truth. Clearly, they did not disagree with him, though, because Paul, with Paul, as they perceived the grace given to him and enjoyed fellowship with him. But, as the text moves on into chapter 2, verse 11, this letter takes a sharp turn in tone. Verse 11, Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. You see, regardless of Peter's position in the church, Paul did not hesitate to confront the apostle. And immediately afterwards in verse 12, Paul deftly expresses two points to explain why this confrontation was absolutely necessary. Clearly stated that Peter had refrained from eating with the Gentiles and that this was due to the influence of the circumcision party. So you might ask the question, who were these men from James? Fair enough. The sociological makeup of the area may have included a large number of Palestinian Jews, and they may have had a similar background as Paul, perhaps even with the, the strict upbringing and the, and the focus of detail into their Jewish lineage. Perhaps it's even reasonable to estimate that this conflict between Peter and Paul points towards a much larger issue. The issue was that Peter's table practices would cast a huge divide and essentially create two distinct ways of being Christian. Can you imagine two ways of being Christian? And in Antioch, Peter witnessed both Jewish and Gentile believers eating together at the same table. And this open table practice was completely in concert with Jesus' ministry you remember when he was accused of eating with sinners in Luke 15, 2? But here, in Galatians, Peter began to separate himself. Moreover, it's clear from the text that Paul and Peter were respected leaders in the church. Yet it seems evident that Paul is taking umbrage or taking issue, not so much with Peter's teaching per se. He takes issue with his behavior, his actions, and his conduct. J.B. Phillips probably said it best. Peter's behavior was a contradiction of the truth of the gospel. But even more alarming was the fact that Barnabas was led astray. Amazing. Can you imagine Barnabas, a pillar of the local community, church planter, being complicit in Peter's hypocrisy? 
You see, church family, our conduct does matter, but not in the way you might be thinking of it in terms of legalistic tendencies like we all do. Just like Peter and Barnabas, our behavior must match the one true gospel so that we are captivated, now hear this, captivated by the word and not the world. You see, here Peter and then Barnabas were swayed by the influence of others, following the crowd, being, being pulled together by others' opinions. So what rationale could Paul give for Peter's behavior? Peter, in Acts 10, chapters 10 through 11, had received direct revelation from God. Specifically, Acts 10, 28, it says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter knew this, and the reality was that this should have extinguished any thought that Peter should disassociate himself and pull away from Gentile believers. Some commentators suggested that the Greek language used in verse 12 seems to imply a gradual withdrawal from meeting with the Gentiles. It might have been slow, just kind of moving in a different direction. So Peter, the rock, was acting in a way that was opposed to the gospel of Christ, and that's why the statement about him being condemned was listed. It may have been a slow change, but you know what? Getting out of step, getting out of step with the true message would have far-reaching consequences. Unfortunately, Peter had responded to both pressure and influence from others. Paul used two quite condemning arguments to describe the situation. Directly afterwards in verse 13, Paul says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. In Greek terms, this refers to play acting or being insincere, putting on a show, so to speak. So probably this was not an honest mistake since in 1 Corinthians, Peter strongly opposes divisions in administering the Lord's Supper. Some suggested that this change was consistent with Peter's wavering and denying Jesus. In other words, these individuals were saying that Peter the rock had begun to act more like Peter a wave of sorts, being wishy-washy in his, in his uh, actions and, and behavior. The second set of condemning words are in verse 14, which said, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Did you see those words? Conduct was not in step. They have been translated from a word similar to our modern-day word of orthopedic, or literally meaning to walk with straight feet. So Paul is saying that their walk was not straight. Now, Paul, writing a number of letters, spoke a great deal or wrote a great deal about our calling as well as our Christian walk. If we refer to Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
But here in Galatians, Paul is saying that Peter was a Jew, but living as a Gentile. In other words, Peter was seeming to affirm a false idea that the Jews were somehow not sinners and because of keeping the law. Overall, Paul seemed to be caught flat-footed by this, mostly because of the behavior of Peter and Barnabas. Yet Paul did not seem to be directly blaming the men from James, the ones that came in, as much as he highlighted how Peter acted when he was in fear of them. He could not leave this situation alone because it might appear to others that they were holding themselves out as somewhat different, being first a Jew and then a Christian. This was no small issue. And while it may seem uncomfortable to read about Paul opposing another apostle this way, it could not be avoided. Here was Peter, not acting like the rock of the faith and bending to the influence of others. Now, four years ago, Pastor Tim described this section of the gospel in military terms. The essence of the situation was that Peter was truly out of step with the true gospel. He knew better, he knew better, but he had lost his cadence, his step with the rest. Now, some of you, like me, know what it's like to march in formation. 30-inch steps, 9-inch arm sway, measured from the back to the front, dress right, dress, cover down. You know, for the platoon to be of one accord, there can only be one cadence issued. When somebody gets out of step, or out of earshot of command, it can be tough to keep the pace, or nearly impossible. Further, when one loses his step, others follow suit, often to devastating consequences. For us here at FBC, we strive to be in line with the one true gospel message. Paul recognized the Christian precipice of faith and life in Galatia. Since even Barnabas was led astray, one can easily imagine that the factions that could have de developed. Can you imagine, thinking here today, can you imagine two different gospel messages? One for the law-following Jewish Christians and the other for Gentiles? John Stott described the severity of this situation as follows. He writes, even Barnabas... Paul's trusted friend and missionary colleague who had stood firm with him in Jerusalem now gave way in Antioch. This is important. If Paul had not taken his stand against Peter that day, either the whole Christian church would have drifted into a Jewish backwater and stagnated, or there would have been a permanent rift between Gentile and Jewish Christendom. One Lord, but two Lord's tables. So you see, friends, it's important that we practice what we preach. While the thrust of Galatians highlights several theological issues, it's very important to remember why this letter is so prominent and important for us. You see, we are saved by faith alone. There is nothing that we bring to affect our salvation, no adherence to religious laws, customs, or practices. And as I read through Galatians, it's clear to me that even the organizational dimension of the text ensures that the message is read clearly from the mind and made very applicable to the heart of every believer. 
So certainly this message is driven by the Holy Spirit and its organization, content, and meaning, so much so that the beginning of chapter 2 lets us reach the zenith of Paul's argument only after he has decidedly handled the expected objections of the Judaizers. Then we reach verse 15, and we know we are not justified by works, we are justified by faith. Verse 15 says, we are justified, excuse me, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, so that we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Martin Luther, remember Martin Luther, wrote, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. You see, our justification has nothing to do with works and keeping the law. From our text, it seems that the Judaizers began to forge additional rules and practices to accommodate their preferences, their comfort, their lineage. Now, do you recall what justification means? Everybody nod and say yes. Here we go. The reason I say that is because Pastor Tim covered this two weeks ago, describing it as a legal term whereby the one who is justified before God is declared innocent or righteous. And you know what? This is the situation for us. It's the situation of all sinners. We all sin and have no ability to be born again or achieve our own salvation at all. There are two things we are certain of, though. The first is that God is righteous, and the second is, is that we are not. We are under both judgment and a just sentence separated from His presence. So for us today here at First Baptist the urgent question is, how can a condemned sinner be justified? And Paul answered it clearly and left no possibility of any alternative. It is by faith alone. The Judaizers attempted to add law-keeping and tradition into the answer. Following the law and certain practices was just an attempt to flatter themselves, make yourself feel like you did something. And we often run the same risk today, all of us. All of us do. It's important to remember that trying to add anything to be justified by faith runs the risk of nullifying the grace of God. How frightening, how frightening to suggest that Christ's grace on the cross was for nothing. You see, faith is not just the mind or intellectual pursuit. I pray that we see and savor, savor is a word that John Piper uses frequently in, when, about reading the Bible. I pray that we see and savor the text at hand and we understand its implications. Just as important, I pray that we feel the influence of our grace-given faith. Do you see that the love of Christ compels our hearts? Simply, the message of Galatians is for us here today. Whilst we have been born again through no effort of our own, we still and lose our cadence. And we do run the risk of running off the road with either legalism or hypocrisy. Only one thing keeps us in step, 
and that is the truth of the one true gospel. So as we conclude today, I pray that we see the beauty of the gospel in Galatians. It's a rich letter, so many components of grace and faith, justification and sanctification. But as we end, let's consider a couple of points. First one is that leaders can fail. You know, nearly 2,000 years ago, we read how Peter got out of step with the gospel, an icon of the church, apostle, fervent church planner with the Jewish peoples, yet he lost his footing. Further, his behavior was key to Barnabas following in his footsteps. Both knew better, yet they were listening to the cadence of another. And regardless of how difficult it might be, it is most important to uphold the gospel. Paul replicated this in his refusing to turn his head from the influence of Peter and the Judaizers. Yet as Charles Spurgeon wrote, this was a big task and hard for him. Spurgeon wrote, it must have been very painful to Paul's feeling to come into conflict with Peter, whom he greatly esteemed, but yet for the truth's sake, He knew no persons, and he had to withstand even a beloved brother when he saw that he was likely to pervert the simplicity of the gospel and rob the Gentiles of their Christian liberty. Friends, we're not immune from what happened back then. In recent times in North America, we've experienced our own legalistic tendencies to lean on a works-based message. And probably all of us here have been touched by that at some point as well. In the last century, we've observed the church adapting to class or race or other forms of anything of a Christ plus anything else model. So we must hold fast to the one true gospel. Now, while we, while we may get out of step, it, the true gospel, never changes. We must live by faith alone, and how we live by faith matters. Just recently, in the last few days, I was talking with some folks that are not believers at this point in time, and they talk about what they see as Christians, and their their compelling thought in describing the situation of what they have issues with sometimes is they want people who are in the church to live like they claim to live. That's a quote. Live like you claim to live. So Peter believed the gospel message, but I would suggest it was not applied well. If we find ourselves here out of step with the gospel, what message are we really sharing with others, both inside and out the church? You know, I pray that the trifles of today do not impede our life in Christ because that's the key to our Christian walk faith in Christ, and how he lives in believers. We must live by Christ every day. All of our daily moments must be completely entrusted to him. He is the one who satisfies. We believe him to be our love. We believe him to be our joy. We believe him to be our source for peace. We believe him to be our satisfaction above all other worldly idols that we tend to create, like money or homes or cars or any other riches or things that we, that we want to try and focus on. And as David Platt wrote, that this 
is life in Christ, to always believe in him all the time for all the things we need. So as the worship team starts coming back up here, we need to impress on our hearts that the cadence of the gospel does matter. The love of Christ does compel us to be in step with the true gospel, the cadence of the gospel. As mentioned earlier, marching in step takes some practice. At other times, Pastor Tim, Pastor Gordon, and Mike have recommended John Piper's APTAT acronym, A-P-T-A-T, as we face new moments of decisions and moral challenges in our lives. First, A, to acknowledge that without Christ I can do nothing. P, to pray that God would make me love as Jesus loves and work everything that is pleasing to him. To trust the promise of God's help and strength. To act as a fruit of the Spirit in obedience to God's word. And to thank God for whatever comes. And then, perhaps, perhaps, by the grace of God, we shall live by faith alone and practice what we preach. Friends, there is only one truth. For all of this, we shall give him the glory.